Greetings, dear listeners. This week, we invited Jason Blakely onto the show. Jason is an associate professor of political science at Pepperdine, a really sharp philosophical mind, and most importantly, the author of a fascinating new book called Lost in Ideology. Shadi and I love the book and its attempt at drilling down into the kinds of assumptions that drive all of our worldviews. But it's not like there wasn't anything for us to disagree on. Strap in for what we thought was a really fun ride. Before we get started, a reminder to head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and consider becoming a paying subscriber, if you're not one yet. And don't forget to give us a like and review on your favorite podcast app. With all that out of the way, on to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm humbled. Nah, come on, humbled. Uh, pleasure yeah. to have you on. Um, listen, uh, so the new book um, is uh, is really thought provoking, and you know, I one way to sort of start these conversations is to be like, you know, um, tell us about the book. You know, what we're no. thinking about doing it, but we're not going to do that. Let's not do that. Let's not do that. <laughs> Um, I, I, I guess, I guess though, this is sort of a way to ask the question, but I think it, it, it gets to the point that, that, that I think is, is preoccupied me as I was reading the book. Um, it's called that, Lost in Ideology, by the way. Yeah, I will have said I'm that sure in that the intro I'm sure that already been said, <laughs> yeah. but the more we say it, you know. It gets into people's ears. <laughs> well, yeah, so Lost in Ideology, Jason, give, give, give readers, uh, listeners and prospective readers uh, a sense of what you mean by ideology. Uh, by ideology, I build on a very famous definition by the anthropologist Clifford Gertz that ideologies are maps, they're cultural maps, they're forms of meaning th that help orient modern people toward politics. But then I play with that and I make it more complex and I try to make it better, you know, and, and I could go into that. But, you know, one thing I do think should be added is if, if ideologies are maps, they're very weird maps because the main metaphor of the whole book fr comes from Jorge Luis Borges and this famous short story he has about these map makers um, in the empire who want to build a map that's the exact same size as the empire and they go at it for decades and then they realize, what the hell are we doing making this map the size of the empire? I think ideologies are like that because they're world making. So unlike a map that just describes something out there in the world, um, they actually can create institutions, forms of selfhood, practices um, in social spaces. And so we actually can live in the map. And that's how, part of how we get so lost in our ideologies is we live inside of them to some degree. But so like, I guess one thing that comes out, right, um, is that this is, and I think you said it just now, it's a, it's a modern thing, right? Um, I guess help me and help our listeners just talk through that a little bit what what's what's the 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 modern jumping off point about ideologies and and actually even in the book how did you you know you 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 go through the course of the book basically delimiting uh, 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 you know outlining a set of uh ideologies that you know we today may encounter in our sort of political and social lives um <clears throat> How did where 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 does ideology start? When's modernity start, and and how do you define that? Where, how did you pick that? 
Yeah, because, you know, that's a great question because in a lot of ways, some of the stuff I have to say about ideology, because I think one of the reasons we're lost in ideology is we don't even, the person on the street doesn't understand what ideology is. We tend to use it as a slander or an insult for basically excessive politics or you've got your beliefs all scrambled. So we tend to use it as a slander. And obviously, if we say ideologies are um, maps of meaning that help orient us in political space, well, then who doesn't have an ideology by that definition? Um, and a lot of what I want to say about ideologies could go for religions, but of course, religions, to what you were saying, Demir, are much, much older by millennia, right? Um, so for instance, ideologies, I think, have strong ethical features. You can convert into them. They have a big pull. They have a vision of what's good. But I don't think they're the same as religions. And although people can undergo ideological conversions or switch in and out of them, they can have a crisis of faith. They can be not feeling it like with religion. Um, there's something very new about ideologies, and there are several ways at that, but probably the quickest way is I think that ideologies are part of a post-scientific or, if you like, secular age in which everyone understands that the map itself is being created inside historical time. So the big contrast point here would be before the rise of the modern age, you know, if you read some of Shakespeare's plays, he still has voices in it that that come from this older world where if the king dies, then suddenly everything goes to hell in a handbasket in nature itself. There are earthquakes and there's eclipses. And my uh, one of my bids on ideology is that no ideology is like that. It's not spooky. It's not grafted into the cosmos. Yeah, you have religious conservatives. You have religious liberals. You have people who still believe in God and have ideologies too. But they don't think that nature itself or the cosmic chain of being is somehow involved in their politics. And so in that sense, we're all kind of like the French revolutionaries, that our maps are things we mobilize behind, we theorize. So our style of politics is like that of the French revolutionaries, even if we're against them, which is we mobilize around tradition or we mobilize around nation, we mobilize around socialism, feminism, ecologism, and so on. And I think I call that disenchantment. It's not my term. It comes out of Max Weber, Charles Taylor, people like that. But I think that ideologies are part of a modern disenchanted age, if you like, an age of science and secularism. Yeah. Okay. There's so much here, and I look forward to talking about different elements of this. One thought I had while reading your book is it felt to me like you were in a kind of indirect way proving the existence of God that, okay, I know that's kind of confusing. Let me, let me explain that you have all these man-made ideologies that are arbitrary ultimately. And I think what your book does a really good job of is showing us that there are no neutral ideologies and, and there shouldn't be because we as human beings are constructing narratives about the world around us. And that is a very conscious act. And there's nothing wrong with it. I think it's also important to note, there's nothing wrong with being ideological right. on its face. That's right. And part of the problem is that we think it's a slur when it maybe isn't or shouldn't be. But it does make me think that the only way truly out of ideology or to at least try to get ourselves out of the trap of ideology, and here I'm, I'm, I'm sort of contradicting myself and talking about ideology as a problem that has to be transcended. But that, you know, religion is one way of doing that. But also the fact that we are the only species. There's something very human about constructing ideology. So it also makes me think that God created us with the capability of doing something very special, which is creating these maps of meaning 
and that it's it's hard for me to see a way that we could have become like this without God sort of breathing a certain kind of life energy into us that makes us capable of these great things. And one of them is the ability to make things up. Um, anyway, anyway, I don't know where I'm going with this, except to say that I think there's a really interesting conversation to be had here about how I, I, how ideology interplays with religion or how we think about religion. And I do wonder to what extent can religion if we take it seriously and we think of religion as something that comes not not from men but from god like if we try to be faithful to a spiritual practice can that temper our ideological passions because i think with any ideology there's a risk of being too passionate and to have an excess of feeling and maybe god is a way of tempering that excess yeah, I mean, it's a it's a wonderful question. I mean, there's so much there, right? And in terms of the first part of what you said, I think that what I'm really committed to in, in the book is the idea that humans um, anthropologically are meaning makers. Now, you can't imagine religious people saying, wow, it's so strange that we can't get rid of meaning. Like meaning is inescapably there, which is a claim I make in the book. If you try to get beyond ideology or beyond trying to orient yourself in this way, um, it's mission impossible because you end up reproducing ideology naively because you live in a social world in one of these kind of world-making maps. Um, so you could imagine a religious person saying, aha, see, you can't get rid of meaning. I do think, however, that non-religious people, I'm thinking of the tradition of existentialism or Nietzsche, there are different non-religious people who also believe that for whatever reason, it could be an accident, they could give some other theory, but humans just happen to be meaning makers who have a meaning problem. That's actually one of the things I find fascinating about Nietzsche is, as an atheist is he thinks our central problem is meaning, even though he's like, God is dead. For him, that's a problem. It's not like a Richard Dawkins, God is dead, yawn, now everything can go on as usual or better. Or did, which is also Demir's position as it, as it happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I could be corrected on this. I could stand to be corrected on this. Can I say something about your second point, though, which is, okay, the thing about religion is that it, it, it's, it's kind of perilous ideologically because, uh, yeah, something the book really poses, particularly by the end, is, is there any space outside of ideology? Because we live in an ideological age and these maps are so big, they're so orienting and disorienting that um, the people who claim that they're outside of ideology tend to be the ones that most naively reproduce it. Um, and so one thought is, well, isn't religion a space outside of it? But the maps are so big that they can absorb and intensify um, ideology in ways that we're all aware of. Like you can pray your rosary as you march on the nationalist um, front, or you can pray your rosary as you join Dorothy Day in an anarchist uh, socialist commune, or you can pray your rosary with Joe Biden probably for all I know, right? So, um, and religion itself, I talk about this in the book, can be, can be lost inside the map so that there's no remainder. Uh, this is one way to think of religious nationalist movements, you know, Islamic, evangelical, Christian, Buddhist, it doesn't matter, is that the map and the religious tradition come to be one on one to one almost without remainder. And so in that sense, they're perilous. On the other hand, I agree with you, Shadi, that religions and not just religions, there are other ethical sources that are sometimes meeting places for humans outside the ideology, given that we have to have ideologies anyway, is one of my views. Hmm. So... Hmm. You know, let me let me jump in. I do want to get to Nietzsche. It's actually one of my it's one of my questions at some point, but maybe not right now. Yeah. Um, even just to build on Shadi's question, one thing that 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 like 
I was still muddled on after finishing your book is um, <clears throat> it is one of the tensions, as you say, right? The book is you can't get outside of ideology. So what do we do about it? And how do we how do we critique? How do we engage with ideologies? What's the difference in your reading between or how do you categorize or even talk about or make a distinction between ideology and politics? And I say that as a question because it's something that, you know, Shadi and I bat around here on the uh, uh, on the podcast a lot is this, you know, this idea that that politics is one of those like very, very sort of core human endeavors um, that one has to admit. And I mean, you've written a lot about sort of overcoming technocracy. I mean, we've done a lot about that on the podcast <laughs> as well. Uh, you know, basically yeah. making the case that, that you know, it's an attempt to overcome politics and that's, right. that's silly. Um, yeah. But then talk a little bit about politics and ideology and, and your desire. I think it is a desire in the book to overcome ideology, knowing that one cannot overcome ideology in a way. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair rendition of the book and maybe the tension in it? Yeah, because part of the book is an attempt to really capture the what it's like to have an ideology feeling. You could call that the first person perspective. I mean, the fancy word in philosophy for that is phenomenology. But really what ordinary people experience, what is it like when I have an ideology, you know? And it can be all in, all consuming. I talk about it as really engaging some of human, humanity's deepest passions, a sense of um, alliance, solidarity, hatred, um, emergency, scorn can also have it in a kind of cool way where we're ironic. So you don't have to live your ideology with that intensity. But there is this sort of thing about ideologies that they they um, they have this kind of danger of becoming all-consuming. And I think something the book tries to articulate is a position that manages to stay outside of ideology while not claiming to um, be able to fully exit, right? And I think the space I'm trying to find is, is anthropological. It's human. It's we're meaning-making creatures. And so uh, atheists who, or agnostics, or Buddhists, or Muslims, or Catholics, or evangelicals who can say, yeah, we're, we're meaning-making creatures, I see that. That's a shared ground. I, I call that humanism, that there's something unique about humans. They're meaning-makers in a way that other animals or the planets aren't. Um, that's a shared space, and from there surges ideology. Now, in our own age, I mean, yeah, ideologies, the reason they're sort of um, non-optional is because the world we find ourselves in, it has been constructed out of it. Like the way the streets are planned, the way the economy is. Or, so in that sense, politics, I mean, if you take politics as a kind of attempt to organize human goods, like Aristotle's old definition, right? That it's the architectonic um, form of knowledge that organizes all our goods. I accept that. I accept Aristotle's definition. It's just that in an ideological age, the way those goods get organized is around this attempt to sort of theorize and rally around a map. And that's a very modern thing to theorize, almost like they're the sciences. I'm going to theorize my map and my map is rationally superior to yours. I mean, part of the thing I'm trying to get to people see in the book is our ancestors were, were political without being ideological in that way. In a way, because they were naive. To us, they were naive. So, um, you know, they might have thought that the spirits or cosmos somehow gave them their politics in a way. Like, even Aristotle, can I pick on him one second? He says the Greek polis is natural. Who the heck believes that? And Aristotle's a genius, but who the heck believes that it's natural for the human person to end up in a Greek polis? But right? Shai, before you jump in, but, uh, but, just but that's exactly, I guess... 
I guess what I'm I want to tug at though, right? Is um is that famous Aristotelian assertion about man being the political animal um in your view correct? Because you know, what I was struck at when you talk about we're meaning making creatures, that anthropological approach and that ideology is part of that. As I was reading it, I kept thinking to myself, I kept falling back on this thing, but we're also political animals in the sense that, that, that we're, we're society creating animals. That's one way to read the political animal thing. And politics is, is a means of how we end up organizing ourselves as human beings. It's, it's, it, it grows out of that. So in a sense, like I kept sort of struggling with this question. I take your point. Ideology is a modern phenomenon. I, 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 I more or less get the distinction. But you know, it, it, I, you know, even from Shadi's earlier question about religion, you know, you have sort of almost like the the political animal. Uh, religion is a certain outgrowth of it, and then maybe a more modern outgrowth of the same phenomenon of politics, religion is ideology that is maybe more temporal, as you say it, more like in the now, less eternal. But still, it felt to me like like part of something on a spectrum. Is that is that where am I? Where am I going off, or 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 like diverging from from your read on it? Uh, well, in part, I, I I agree with that. So I I agree that we're the political animal in the sense that politics is unavoidable for us, and I think it's a sign of an ideology. For instance, the chapters do a kind of tour of all the major ideologies and. I think readers will recognize that, for instance, liberalism has a story about being able to easily exit ideology. And so often in American life, particularly pre-2016, but it was very common in my generation anyway, you know, to hear people say, I'm not very political, you know, to which the only proper answer is, so you're very liberal. In other words, you might be libertarian or you might be like social liberal, but you basically believe that politics is sort of um, an artificial add-on to the state of nature and that you can always exit into the state of nature like Thoreau or like, you know, Kaczynski or something more beastly and just go out into nature and suddenly you're not political. No, that's a politics, right? So in part, I agree with you that I agree that the, in within sort of society, the highest way we have of organizing our notion of what's good is politics. And in an ideological age, the way we do that is through this maps theorization and, and, and ideological rallying. Now, that having been said, I do think that um, to Shadi's earlier point, religions claim to offer, particularly the world religions, claim to offer a horizon of meaning that is older and is trans ideological. Some don't. Some, when they appear, they're just like, evangelicalism is the same as being an American nationalist. But I mean, look at something like the setup of the papacy or global Islam or the, the length of time Buddhism has been around. They participate in different ideological movements and politics and they straddle the divide I'm talking about between the pre-modern age and the ideological age. And yet they, and they sometimes are, you know, sort of completely hybridized with a political program. And yet there's a remainder, they go beyond it to, to something else. And so I do think that the major world religions are puzzling in that they can become completely annexed inside of ideology. And yet they're older, their traditions are older and they can sort of exist outside of it and claim to speak in the name of something outside of mere mm. politics. There's a split, there's a tension in the world religions between mere politics and like a, a sort of um, transcendental goal or aim beyond mere life or mere politics. Yeah, so speaking of 
world religions. Um, you have a quote in the book that stood out to me, and I'll, I'll just mention it here, and I'd be curious what, like, if you could expound a little bit. So you say that, quote-unquote, that liberalism understands itself to be universal and rationalist does not spare it from being a cultural tradition that one, that one must join akin to joining a universalist religion like Christianity or Islam. So you're making a kind of something akin to a one-to-one comparison between liberalism and Islam or Christianity, that it's something that must be joined. And I'm curious what you really mean by that, because most people who are liberals, or a lot of people who are liberals, don't realize that they are liberals there isn't the kind of conscious ritual or conscious joining. And there is a pretense to not having joined something distinctive, unlike Christianity or Islam. Can can you maybe help us think through that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I thank you. And that's, that's a great, um, you know, point to make at this juncture, because part of what I'm trying to say here is that, ideologies are also cultural traditions. So like, what do they share with religion? Religions are cultural traditions, whatever else they might be. They extend through time, they're collective works across generations. You inherit them as a background set of practices and they have a vision of what's good, right? And one of the central claims of the book is that the way people get lost in ideology is they think their ideology is not meaning, it's not culture, it's not a vision of the good, it's just nature. It's just science. It's just what happens whenever you get rid of politics. And so my definition of ideology at first, this is an innovation I make on Clifford Gertz, is at first it looks like just a description that looks like, okay, yeah, that that sort of makes sense. Um, Why would I want to argue with that? But it's actually critical. It's critical of anyone's ideology that claims it's not cultural or tries to make itself scientific. And you get that often in liberalism, that it's simply a state of nature or it's common sense and ahistorical. Everyone would be liberal. I mean, we saw this with the war in Iraq. It was like, if you just bomb, I mean, really, no, if you just bomb Iraq, you will find liberals waiting there for you. There was very little engagement of the underlying culture. It was if you remove this sort of despotic government that's there, then look, liberalism is so natural and universalistic that liberal liberalism will just take root we'll worry about that problem problem later so it can have very real world effects but if i can add here part of that is yes me being critical of universalist rationalist enlightenment theories that claim to not be traditional so that could sound almost like whoa conservatives could get excited about that because i'm saying that rationalist traditions like socialism like liberalism are traditional in fact but I actually think conservatives also get lost in ideology because they'd say, I don't have an ideology. I just have customs and folkways that come from time immemorial. They're not they're not ideologies or oftentimes like a, a conservative I quite admire as a thinker, though I don't ascribe to his ideologies, Michael Oakeshott. And he often says, well, conservatism is is almost just like a practical mindedness. You know, it's just being sort of practical minded and not too abstract about your problems. And That too has the same problem as the liberal does who thinks my ideology isn't really ideology, it's natural. So in short, I think everyone can make this mistake in a different way if it makes sense. They can not own their ideology as cultural, as traditional, as a map. But I think conservatives are a little bit different in that they know they're reacting against a dominant mainstream culture, which they see as being liberal. So 
by knowing what they're against, they know that who they are and that they are something distinctive. They are standing athwart history and yelling stop to use Buckley's yeah. memorable phrase. That seems that that seems much more consciously acknowledging that they are doing something particular in reaction. I mean, I guess in some ways conservatism is reactionary because there's no need to be explicitly conservative unless you feel like something is under threat. So that seems to me different than how most liberals are because they're so dominant at least in our culture in elite circles that they don't have they don't have to have they don't have to state what they are. They can just feel neutral in a way that conservatives can't in the current culture. What would you yeah. say to that? Well, I think that's well put. And so far, I'm emphasizing the critical side of my book, the way I can be critical of ideology. But I also say by the end that part of if you take on board this kind of um, cultural definition of ideology that I want readers to see, part of that gives you a better definition of the ideology, I think, than most people have. But it also allows you to affirm that there are more defensible versions of every one of the ideologies. And so if I can say there are liberals who can give an account of their ideology as cultural and traditional. T.H. Green, the um, British idealist uh, liberal, I, I give an account of him in the, in the uh, chapter on social liberalism. I think he gives a, a conception of, of um, social liberal ideology that basically doesn't fall victim to this criticism the way, say, John Locke would. Um, and But on the conservative side, yeah, I mean, Shadi, I think you just sort of articulated a version of conservatism that roughly fits more with the definition I'm offering. But in fact, in the chapter on conservatism, I talk about how conservatives can become lost in ideology when they don't see their um, tradition first uh, first and foremost as something that itself has uh, meaning-making dimensions that are uh, – susceptible to rival articulations. So like in Edmund Burke, for instance, you and in a lot of conservatives, you get this idea of a monolithic tradition of just being Christian or being American. But when you actually look at them as cultural traditions, what you see is, okay, but Catholics and evangelicals or even internal to Catholicism, you've got rival articulations of it. So conservatives often go wrong, not only in terms of making a kind of monolithic, abstract, unitary thing out of their tradition, but also they end up mobilizing like the very French radicals that Burke claimed to dislike, which is they mobilize around an abstract conception of tradition or morality that is not really part of the life world at all anymore. It's part of – in fact, that's part of what's going on right now. It's it's an abstract marker, no more abstract than say the universal rights of man that Burke was so upset about. Um, so it, there are ways in which every ideology can – if you like drift away from a cultural conception and thereby become lost. And it seems like I don't have an ideology at all. I have the tradition that is just unitary and, you know, comes from time immemorial. One of my big beefs is the the defenders of Western civilization. It's like, guys, Western civilization might be useful as a descriptor, but that is a humongous category with every possible <laughs> politics and religion underneath it. It's like, here comes everybody. That's Karl Marx too. Karl Marx is Western civilization. Here come Catholics, atheists, agnostic, everybody. So like, there's no Team West. I'm sorry, you're just going to have to drop it. I know it makes you feel good, but there's no Team West. I mean, read the symposium. Like, homoeroticism is a positive thing in the ancient Greek world, you know? There are a multiplicity of views. Like there is no mo there is no monolithic tradition. So it goes wrong. It gets lost in ideology because it sees its tradition is just given in some way, well, right? Well, this and begs not the historical. 
This begs the question, though, are you, Jason Blakely, lost in ideology? I think <laughs> I, I, I read, no, I mean, I so reading the book, but also reading your blockbuster um, art piece in Harper's on oh, the you. ideology of scientism, how during COVID, you had this expert class that kept on saying, follow the science, and they thought they were being ideologically neutral because science is transcendent, but of course... That's not actually true, um, but uh, and we'll include a link to that piece in the Thank show you, notes. Yeah. Would also highly recommend that people read that. I remember when it came out, it caused it caused <laughs> it provoked a lot of discussion and much of it good discussion, which isn't always the case. But well, can um, I say what was really good about that is that's when Shadi followed me on Twitter. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> then I was like, oh, okay, I guess I've written something worthy of you notice. made it. That's when you knew you made it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but reading reading a chunk of your work, and I haven't studied you in depth as a person. Like I don't, I I haven't read all of your tweets, and I'm sure that if I did a systematic <laughs> study, I'd be able to glean some kind of distinct ideological leaning. But I don't know if that was deliberate that you kind of um, hold your cards close to the chest and you like to sort of be an observer and not really be implicated in your own arguments. But you, but you yourself must have an ideological leaning. I'm guessing that you are. Um, I'm guessing <laughs> that you're basically <laughs> like um, a social. Lib. D- <laughs> a, a lib, yeah, a lib. But but that you're probably like le- obviously left leaning. But that's just my guess because most academics are left leaning. But also you have our friend of the pod, Sam Adler Bell, who blurbed your book, and he's like a social democrat. So if Sam Adler Bell likes you and agreed to blurb your book, it probably means that maybe you're not, you're not Bernie Sanders adjacent, but maybe Elizabeth Warren adjacent, or you're somewhere you're somewhere there. You're not like you're not like Joe Biden. You're maybe to the left of Joe Biden. But anyway, that's just me presuming a lot of different things. So I guess I'd ask you, like, why why aren't you more open about your own? ideological commitments and what are they that's a great question i mean well so part of that is because the project of the book is to capture the what it's like to have an ideology from the inside out because one of the ways we're lost in ideologies we narrate other people through our own story and then we get it totally wrong we get this cartoon version of why they're motivated to do what they do and so you know the the book does start out with this idea that the near has become far that we need to practice a kind of ethnography or thick description on our neighbor our neighbor is alien to us it doesn't look like it because we share the same language english you know we've got a lot of the same cultural practices and whatnot but we actually don't understand each other and we tend to give an account of say the other ideology that is completely in our own terms right Mm. and so it's a little bit like being um, monolingual or never having left the shire or something it's like no you really don't understand the culture that's in front of you anymore so part of it is because um, chapter by chapter, it's a tour of the major ideologies. I'm trying to do something really hard, which I, I'm waiting for the people to say, you didn't do it in this, you didn't do it in this way. And that's a fair criticism, which is to cap someone who really believes in that ideology should be able to recognize it as a formidable, articulate, nuanced version of their ideology when the chapter comes up. At the same time, to your point about detachment, I'm not detached because my commitment philosophically is to humanism. 
And humanism is an ethical position, and it's a kind of it also has got certain like methodological or approach dimensions to it, right? So um, I basically don't think you can have a science that explains human behavior. And I think it's possible to have a humanistic outlook from across ideologies that's critical. So humanism is doing the critical work. I'm critical of scientistic Marxism. I'm critical of scientistic liberalism. I'm critical of free market scientists, whatever the heck that is. You know, So I'm critical of scientisms wherever they appear. Why? Because I think my anthropology, that humans are meaning making, implies a humanism. That humans have to be, you have to listen to their stories. Doesn't mean you have to accept them and can't criticize them. I do think you get better or worse at their stories. But you, in order to even explain the object of study in the human sciences, you've got to listen to the cultural narrative that you're observing because that's what actually explains the action. So humanism is my real commitment. I've changed political positions a lot in my life, honestly. Um, and I came from a household with very, very, very steep political differences. It was a bilingual household. My mom spoke Spanish. She was an immigrant from Colombia. My dad's Anglo-American, despises religion. My mom's Catholic, you know. Um, and so I was – this book actually reflects my childhood. A Freudian could come along and say, no, this is just – this is Jason still trying to explain his parents to each other, you know. Um, so – but – but it, it, I, one should not mistake the attempt to capture things from the inside out with being uncritical or unaligned. If if someone puts a gun to my head like Zizek says and says like, "What's your philosophy?" It's humanism. And then okay, but that's not an. But that I'm not sure if I'd call that an ideology. An it's not ideology. You're right. or an, but let me let me let me just mm-hmm. jump in on this because I'm right. I'm 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 there. I'm I'm sort of was about to go in the same place. Just maybe ask it slightly differently. I I loved. And it's something that frustrates Shadi as well. It's, it's like, what do you believe in, Demir? What's your positive vision? And, and I was just like, ah, here's here's a guy. He's like, he's 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 not falling into that that annoying trap of 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 that. Nevertheless, nevertheless, though, Jason. I mean, by the time I got to the end, and especially, I think like the the humanism does come out, uh, and you talk about it in the last chapter a little bit more explicitly. And yet still, and yet still, and maybe this is the way to ask what I think maybe was Shadi's next question. Um, every ideology has a conception of the good. Right. Is that a fair sort of yeah, thing to say about fair. it? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like you, in your asserting humanism, you also feel you're asserting a, a conception of the good there um, in contradistinction to the ideologized one, the scientific one, as you're just saying, the scientized one. Um but then really, what do you do with someone like Nietzsche, who you just smuggle into the fascism chapter, and I think correctly, just just a little bit, you say, perhaps incorrectly invoked by some fascists, which I think is the correct <laughs> way to do this. But but like, you know, it, there is there is that tradition in philosophy, right? That that kind of Nietzschean one, which actually yeah. is not humanistic. Um, right. Good is, point. It, is, it, is it, is it, is it, uh, he has a conception of the good, Uh is it an ideology? It's kind of hard to think of Nietzschean ideology. It's a weird yeah. thing. Maybe like Marilyn Manson believes in a Nietzschean ideology. I don't know, but mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's, it's, mm-hmm. um, so I, yeah, you know, I, I think Shadi was about to ask you about humanism as an ideology, but I just wanted to, to throw in a little bit more there about that. Mm. Like the question of the good, right. where does it come from in your conception? Because I do think you do an admirable job in the book of, approaching ideology both as this totalizing thing that we can't we can't fully escape 
and at the end, making a case that this is how one can engage with ideologies without fully escaping them, how one can critique inside and outside, cross, even have some sort of maybe dialogue, something akin to an interfaith dialogue. Yeah. But, 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 um, but you still can't escape it. You're always right. going to be in one or the other, kind of like interfaith dialogue. You, you, it doesn't yeah. really make sense to, I don't know, have an atheist sort of mediate it. And yet still, and yet still you're somehow trying to be outside it. So I don't know. Yeah. Run with that however you want. Well, yeah, no, I mean, that's a great point. And I, I kind of was thinking, I could imagine someone reading this and being like, Jason's still a liberal after all these years. Because look at him trying to dialogue. He's trying to have political pluralism. And there's the ideologies like fascism, a certain form of um, Marxist communism. Political pluralism is over. I just read Leah Ippi's um, biography, Freedom, about growing up in Albania. It's really interesting. And she has this part where, you know, the West is coming, the West is coming. And one of the big slogans around it is political pluralism. You know, like we, mm. you can have several political parties. You know, um, clearly, there's something sort of politically pluralist in the humanist position of sitting, listening, um, trying to figure out people's points of view from the inside out. I could also imagine someone list, listening to me and saying, this is obviously like sub-Catholic in some way. Like he's trying to love his neighbor, whereas Nietzsche would agree with you about you know, meanings are historical and you have to make meanings even if you don't want to. But his position would be, you know, um, not one of necessarily um, the affirmation of ordinary people. You know, he might have a I mean, there are so many Nietzsche's and he's a fascinating character. And I, I spent so much time in, enthralled with Nietzsche in my 20s and I still admire him greatly. But even though I'm not a Nietzschean, but he he might, you know, one version is that Nietzsche wouldn't really care about the ordinary person the way you do, Jason. Like you're, you're saying, let's listen to the ordinary person and their meanings and their traditions. Whereas Nietzsche would just say, like, there's a few great individuals who can really look the truth in the face and create something that isn't nihilism, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that, that's a fair point that um, I, I think my humanism, if we had to locate it historically, goes back to people like Erasmus of Rotterdam and Thomas More and Shakespeare. It's slightly older than the age of ideologies, but it comes from um, the attempt to recover uh, Aristotle and some of the ancients and the idea that human beings are a unique um, cre uh, creature. If I say creature, it already sounds sort of religious, but like a unique being in the order of things because they're, they're world makers. They dwell in worlds. You see that already in Thomas More's Utopia. So I'm very happy to lay my cards down with Erasmus and Thomas More. In terms of actual political ideas, like how do you vote? How do you blah, blah, blah? I mean, so I grew up in a house where there was social democracy and progressivism dominating the household, but my mom was from Colombia and Catholic and had a lot of beliefs that were quite, I think, would be considered conservative in a lot of ways. Um, and sometimes she was more radical than my father on the economy and things. And so there was a lot of arguing. And I sort of started progressive, went to Vassar College, was progressive, was an Ichan, was kind of an atheist. Then just in time for ending up at Berkeley for grad school, I was reading all these books by Leo Strauss. And I became so reactionary. It was before 2016. For like five years, it was like decline of the West, et cetera, et cetera. Then I converted to Catholicism. My very Catholicism made me very uncomfortable with this kind of vitriol and disappointment and kind of world-hating resentment I sensed on the right. So, you know, I got kind of pushed out of that. So, but, you know, one, one of the reasons I'm so cagey about it or try to stay uh, arm's length is because, one, my real enemy is technocracy. So I'm very comfortable saying I don't like Stalin. I don't like Friedrich Hayek and Milton. I don't like people who tell me science tells me society has to be that way. So I'm definitely anti-technocracy across the board. And I'm willing you hate to Fauci. I don't like Fauci at all. He's probably a nice guy, so I almost don't want to say bad. Hate his <laughs> politics. I do hate his politics. But, you know, like I – but 
but also I think we've really lost in an age of ideologies the the old Aristotelian notion of hey what's your second best regime everybody you know like I know mm. what your best one is but everyone's like my regime or bust <laughs> you know and we share a society and it might not always be possible to have your regime or bust I have my my regime or bust I've written pieces on um, in a way Shadi's quite perceptive I've written pieces I think that is why. Um, I'm sort of liked by some people. I, I don't ever feel like I'm quite liked by anyone, but that might just be my psychological hangup. But like, you know, by like Sam Adler Bell and Matt Sittman, who are basically like um, socialists or social democrats or something like that. Um, I've written pieces defending like um, Thomas More's utopianism and the need to revive utopia. So that's out there. You know, I'm not trying to hide it. Um, but I think it's possible to dialogue and criticize and go through politics without having to leap to the end right away to where we you know our commitments um come down and if if we leap too soon we short circuit the dialogue you know if if i say up front i'm i'm a catholic somewhere weirdly on the left but not entirely really because i have things that don't fit with all everyone's going to shut the book and be like great i know what you think because you think that ideology and then we're stuck in the same place that i want to stay out of if you see what I'm ah, so it's partly tactical Partly, yeah, for sure. It's partly pedagogical almost. It's like we need to teach ideology. And I teach ideology here at Pepperdine, you know, and the students figure it out by then. They're smart. You can't hide from them. And I don't believe in neutrality. That'd be the scientific view again, that I can just describe, describe, describe without any commitment to meanings. That position just lets a kind of uh, relativism went out. Political science is on the side of relativism. Like that's not a neutral position. To be neutral and scientific is not neutral. But yeah, I mean, it is that, right? It's that it's the tension between relativism um, and yet still some notion of the good, right? And that's that's for me where where it sort of breaks down. So it's interesting, though. You know, you're 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 harkening back to a tradition that, well, not exactly pre-enlightenment, but it is interesting that you start with the with liberals and Locke in the book, right? I mean, to what extent is the Enlightenment itself a nasty, de- not a nasty departure, but a departure from from that, the ability to think humanistically? Um, is is that, you know, as a historical moment, you know, again, I, I, I don't want to say sort of dumb things that, that are too easy to caricature, but like where where humanity takes a wrong turn, where like the project sort of... You know, and now I sound like 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 I don't uh-huh. know Patrick Deneen or something. I'm not <laughs> going there, but like, yeah. but but there's a sense yeah. there, right? That that even just as you laid out your sort of your priors a little bit here, um, and and your antipathy, though a resigned antipathy to modernity and the pervasiveness of ideology, it's it is something in the Enlightenment that does that, right? Yes, even though I should say I don't have an antipathy to modernity. I'm glad to be in modernity. You know, I I don't think it's an age of decline. I don't follow those accounts that say why don't Western men build things like this anymore. I think Bob Dylan's a genius, literarily, truly. You know, I think the modern age has done things that are stupendous. But I, what I have is it's probably like a kind of neo Hegelian. It's both bad and good at the same time, and so we have to be able to hold the oppositions. And I feel the same way about liberalism. You know, liberalism has some good things in it. It has some true things in it, probably. It has some things that we need to contend and wrestle with in it, and then it has some things that 
have gone off the rails, you know, and um, I, more than tactical, because I was sort of provoked by Shadi saying that more than tactical, because I, I don't I'm not a Machiavellian. It's not ta- it, there is a sort of withholding, but it's also because we need to work through the ideologies and see what we can possibly share in them or at least let challenge us within them. And um, what, so, you know, what what does go wrong in the Enlightenment, and that's probably what you're picking up on, Demir, is that's the birth and the origin of the idea that I could have a science of society. And clearly I'm against mm. that, which is probably why I sometimes – to some people – I have a lot of people on the right who follow me on Twitter. It's the Catholic stuff. It's And it's these notes. It's like, oh, you're saying that what went wrong was science, right? Science is bad, <laughs> which is not quite my position, but I do think that – we modern people have a very special way of going bad and it's via science you know yeah pre-modern peoples they're killing each other because the gods say to do this and that but like we we truly kill each other for science i really believe that it's not really science it's scientism real science is great it just doesn't do anything for us meaning wise or morals wise but we do a lot of our killings and so so on in the name of science and i'm trying to find a shared ground for dialogue there i'm trying what i'm really trying to do in the book is anti-technocrats of the world unite ecumenically, like you were saying earlier, um, Demir, you know, in, in a space of let's, let's get the Stalins out. Let's get the like free market scientists out. Let's have a dialogue about really, you know, the, the cultures, the rival cultures we're proposing to each other as um, rival bids on meaning, on political meaning. Um, so in that sense, I, I do see why people hear that sort of, oh, there was a wrong turn there. Though I want to hold up the oppositions. There was a right turn, there was something good, and there was a wrong turn um, at the same time in in that move. So you seem to be saying there, there's something about the rise of the modern state that makes ideology necessary because the state is interested in organizing and refashioning society. So um, it's not just like it's t- it correlates with the decline of religion as a kind of overarching when religion was the only ideology there was no need for ideology so for example there was no such thing as islamism in the pre-modern period because there was no reason to be consciously islamic if everything around you was unquestionably islamic as the kind of worldview that everyone shared under the caliphate let's say uh, Ottoman Caliphate or previously the Abbasid Caliphate, um, there was no one who was arguing that there was a different source of legitimacy than the Sharia or Islamic law. So it, it went without saying, so it wasn't said. Um, but I, I do think, so there's definitely this aspect of, you know, decline of overarching religious worldviews. But, and maybe this is also what makes the state possible is that um so there's probably a lot that one can like uh, disentangle there but it seems to me that you need a state for ideology to really matter and you need to have a desire to organize life yeah and that's a very shrewd point because even if you look back to the etymology the term ideology you know it emerged out of it's not used this way anymore but it was thought that there was going to be a science of ideas right that's actually the and and the name is escaping me just now because he's a fairly minor figure in in european political thought but he gave us the word um and he he was french and now his mind is just but that that idea of like oh i'll just make a science of of ideas is even is even lurking in the term ideology itself obviously i don't want to use it in that narrow sense but it was born out of the sort of scientistic uh, what i would call a scientific turn um at the same time um 
you know, I, what you're saying about the state is fascinating because there's so many ideologies that want to get beyond the state. I mean, talk about, you know, I'm, I'm kind of hard on on libertarians, neoliberals, I suppose, but I always have admired Robert Nozick. He's so clever and he's so bright and, you know, he seems to want some kind of nearly anarchic libertarianism that somehow it's just markets and nothing else or Marxism wanted to get beyond the state. But I actually do quite agree with you in a way, Shadi, that um, so – Part of an age of disenchantment seems to be, and part of why ideologies are so intense is people in 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 sort of the main ideological battles the last few centuries are fighting for the levers of the state and even like the sculpting of the state. And the state is scary. I mean, it's it, it, not in a sort of like state phobia, let's all be libertarians, but I mean, administrative organization as Max Weber saw, this is what the libertarians don't get, is incredibly efficient. Find me an army that fights as well as a bureaucracy does, you know, attack with a tax base. And so there is this kind of um, politics that Weber gives articulation to about, you know, a monopoly of violence, right? That famous definition of po po politics as uh, um, the monopoly of, 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 of violence within a territorialized domain. And I do think the ideological maps are trying to sort of um, spatially often take over the state and are sort of vying or fighting for the state, even though the, I don't want to put the state outside of ideology in the sense that the state itself is constructed out of the maps. Um, but they, we see in it a kind of tool or political technology that um, – yeah, I, I think that is often a sort of center point for the contest um, where the rubber sort of hits the road. Because this can also sound quite ideal and fluffy, right? Like, oh, meanings, wonderful, ideas, wonderful. I can imagine a Marxist or a realist listening to this and be like, and what about politics and the state and blood and money and guns, yeah. right? So yeah. that's exactly where I'll come in. <laughs> <laughs> that's it for part one, dear listeners. There's a lot more where that came from. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and become one. Help support our work. Hope to see you in the bonus.